1: News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest-growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade show. On a day in which Israel is at war, and we're watching Lebanon, our embassy in Lebanon, some some fire on the perimeter there. There's people being hurt. Protests are happening. We know fires happened last night. This uprising because Hezbollah called for a day of rage. Because they say that Israelis, the IDF blew up a hospital in Gaza. Listen, it's war. They started with a carnage, but they had nothing to do with it. Even Al Jazeera came out and said this was an errant rocket from Islamic Jihad. But when you see an American embassy under siege, people throwing rocks, trying to break through, setting fires, you immediately think about 1979 or you think about Benghazi. What about Governor Ron DeSantis, who wants to be there? get the Republican nomination for president of the United States and be the next president of the United States joining us now. Governor, I don't know if you're able to you're near a screen at all or by your phone uh, watching, but you're seeing these protests outside our embassy in Lebanon. Uh, we got some Marines on the inside, but that's a scary situation.
3: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, But I think a lot of that has been fueled by what you pointed out. You had media organizations uh, jumping the gun, pursuing a narrative about this hospital, basically taking the word of Hamas for it that this was somehow an IDF strike on a hospital, when in fact it was a rocket uh, fired by Palestinian Islamic Jihad that misfired and and hit the hospital. And so the media ran with that. That stoked a lot of uh, rage throughout the region, and it was false. So I think this shows Israel what they're up against, because they obviously have to conduct operations to be able to eliminate Hamas and eliminate that threat once and for all. Uh, But they are going to be fighting in an environment uh, where so much of the media is going to be arrayed against them, so much of the intelligentsia internationally, United Nations, all these different things, and it's just important that America stand with them, uh, have moral clarity, and say, you know what? They were the victims of this attack. They have a right to protect their people, and they have a right to see this through.
2: Yeah, I would think so, Uh, Governor. So we see that, what's going on. We also see some uh, uprisings on the West Bank. Hezbollah as daily skirmishes with the IDF on the north and in the south. I think the land invasion was probably put off because President Biden came to town. Uh, Here's what President Biden said this morning when he arrived. Cut one.
4: Mr. Prime Minister, thank you very much. Folks, uh, I wanted to be here today uh, for a simple reason. I wanted the people of Israel, the people of the world to know where the United States stands. I've had my great secretary of state here. He's been here for a lot. But I wanted to personally come and make that clear. Was it the right message?
3: Well, it's interesting, Brian, uh, because, you know, they will say U.S. stands with Israel. But what are they doing behind the scenes? what they're doing behind the scenes is really trying to restrain Israel. They want to be able to continue, incredibly, they want to be able to continue attempts to have a rapprochement with Iran. They have not done anything uh, to snap sanctions on Iran. They haven't done things to dry up some of the money that Iran's been sending to the Middle East. So I I think that they're behind the scenes making life more difficult for Israel to be able to conduct the operations that are going to be necessary to, to bring this problem to to a conclusion once and for all. I mean, if you go in, just do some glancing blows, do some damage, you know, Hamas will we'll come back and then they're going to do it again. So we, we got to stop the cycle. And I don't think privately the administration uh, is doing what is conducive to that. I think they're more of a hindrance to Israel at this point.
2: Right. And, and with, before he got on board, and one time when he was in the air, he found out that Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority have all refused to see him because they said the hospital attacked by the IDF, which didn't happen. So what do you do if it's Governor DeSantis, President DeSantis, you decide to go to Israel, but you want to do some diplomacy with our so-called allies outside the Palestinian Authority, and they tell them, we don't want to see you? Should he have turned around?
3: Well, here's the thing. I'm not sure it was a good idea to go there and inject yourself uh, into a a situation like that. I mean, we we can do policy uh, without doing that. When the president shows up, it creates all kind of complications. I mean, for example, we, we've been rescuing people from Israel. One of our flights now is on hold because of the airspace issues with, with, with Biden. So it creates a whole host of complications. You put yourself in a situation uh, where it's a very dynamic I would be doing it probably from the White House. Uh, I would be working with, with Egypt and Jordan. I mean, they're, they're, they're allies. Uh, I think it's interesting that um, they don't want anything to do with Palestinian Arabs leaving the Gaza Strip, going into their countries. I mean, you would think that this has been a cause celeb throughout the Arab world for so many years with the uh, conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinian Arabs, and yet they say absolutely zero, not one uh, refugee. And I think that that's instructive, because I think that they view those refugees as creating a problem for their society if they were due. That's why I came out. I was the first presidential candidate to say, uh, we are not bringing to the United States uh, these Palestinian Arabs uh, if they leave the Gaza Strip. I know there are people in the United States like uh, the squad and people on the far left that are saying we should import a million people from the Gaza Strip. That's a total non-starter. We will not do any when I'm president.
2: Well, I mean, uh, and people were upset by that. They, uh, Margaret Brennan was taking you on on Face the nation on Sunday. Uh, she obviously didn't like that. I don't think she's in sync with the American people. I think there are more Democrats now getting involved and saying, what the hell is going on in our border now and who is coming through?
3: And also, Brian, you know, the, the, the point that, you know, Brennan was trying to make and then Nikki Haley tried to make it this weekend, although she's backtracked, is that, well, you know, you have some people with Hamas, but then you have others that are more interested in, in freedom and all this stuff. And, and that's actually not the question. Obviously, you wouldn't import a terrorist, but if you're importing people from Gaza that have been taught to hate Jews, uh, that don't believe Israel has a right to exist, that think that, you know, Israel needs to be destroyed, we're importing pathology from that part of the world to our country. And that's not in the interest of the American people. The American people uh, will not benefit from that. So so I've said absolutely not. Now, I agree with you. I think most Americans, Republicans, Independents, and now even a lot of Democrats understand when you see some of these protests and these demonstrations in our own country, when the blood wasn't even dry uh, from these Israelis who were massacred over there, you had people taking to the streets, praising Hamas, in defense of Hamas. How do we get to that point uh, where that happens? So I think people are like, we've really got to take seriously who's coming into our country. Yes, illegally across the border, but who are we intentionally importing right. uh, with some of the things that have happened over the last many years? And so, so that's the right decision. Now, the elites the elites don't care about uh, the American people. They have their own agenda. So elite media and and other elites in government, they would have a different view than me, but, but my my view, I think, is is what has support mm-hmm. from broad uh, cross sections of the American public. So,
2: you know, Governor Santos, uh, the thing that surprised me most about this whole thing has been the protests. I mean, I walked down Times Square six blocks from where I am right now, and there's a huge rally in support of what Hamas did in New York City. And it didn't stop there; there was two more yesterday. They were dueling protests pro Hamas pro-israel at uh, washington square park in new york city you know it's happening all over the country and now you're you have an ivy league background you got yale and harvard in your background both colleges seem to be have professors and student bodies that are pro-palestinian pro-hamas how does that it's, happen
3: it's unbelievable you know I, I i joke with people i say you know on the campaign trail i'm like look i'm one of the few people that have gotten through Harvard and Yale and came out more conservative than when I went in. And that's not easy to do because of the leftist viewpoints. But I will say, as left as it was when I was going through that, and I rejected it, and it kind of made me more conservative, it's gotten a lot worse um, in the last couple decades. I mean, it's gotten to the point, you know, I don't think after 9-11, you had protests on Ivy League campuses praising what had happened, praising the terrorists or doing anything like that. Um, Now, you have protesters praising brutal terrorists on those campuses, signing letters, and I think it's totally appropriate, and indeed, these businesses should be doing that. If there are students that are signing that in defense of Hamas, they they get offers of employment rescinded, they they get fired from internships and all those other things. That's a no-brainer. I mean, just imagine how Ivy League universities, you know, would respond or how they've responded uh, in other situations. This one is one of the most egregious things you can imagine, and yet they're so quiet with it. I will tell you this, though, Brian. In Florida, if you look at the statements that were put out by the University of Florida president, Florida state president, you know, they came out very strongly against Hamas and very strongly in favor of Israel and our Jewish students, and I was proud to see that. We've worked really hard to to get our universities away from being indoctrination centers and focusing on the classic mission, classical mission of pursuing truth and preparing our kids to be citizens of the republic, and I think you see it paying off and how they responded to this.
2: Last foreign policy question, you know, we know Iran is our real enemy. We know Iran is the enemy of most in the Middle East. That is what the Abraham Accords were based off of, a common enemy, Iran, not Israel. So having said that, you've seen the, the, the reapproachment from the Biden administration. From now on, if you got this ball in the Middle East, which is a ball of fire right now, knowing Iran finances Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, as well as uh, uh, Hamas— And who knows what other group. And Wall Street Journal says they orchestrated this whole thing using their Revolutionary Guard Force, Soleimani's replacement. And they did it in Beirut. And there's been no pursuit to find out about the genesis of that story. How do you handle this without causing a world war, or do you risk it?
3: Well, look, you assume— this could not have happened without Iranian patronage. I mean, the idea that this is even a question uh, is a joke. Of course they do that. All the, the terrorism that's been fomented in the Middle East in the last 25 years overwhelmingly has been Iran. I mean, when I was in, in, in Iraq serving on active duty, there was a lot of attention on the Sunni jihadists, the al-Qaeda in Iraq, and they were, they were a, a force. But most of our own combat deaths at the time were from Iranian-funded militias people that were directed by Soleimani. So they have a lot of American blood on their hands. They did the Beirut bombing and our Marines in 83. They funded Hezbollah on that. This is just what they do. So what Biden needs to do, he needs to reverse his policies that have given sustenance to the regime, put them in a financial box. That's one of the reasons I want to increase our energy production at home, because when we're energy dominant, that's bad for Russia, Iran, China, and Venezuela. Uh, If you pursue a Green New Deal in this country... Just understand you are benefiting Iran you are benefiting Russia you are benefiting China so reversing the nation's energy policy being independent and dominant I think is very important but I think it's choking them off on that and I do think getting a Saudi Israeli peace deal I think it's complicated now given what's going on but I think Biden dropped the ball on that he could have done that in his first year that creates the the front mm-hmm. of the Gulf Arab states Israel and the United States uh, against Iran it Makes it harder for the Iranians uh, to, to do what they want to do in the region when you have a united front.
2: Have you qualified for the debates already? Oh yeah, yep. So you're in going to be in the fourth debate, and you got a field of about eight right now.
3: Third, you're, third debate.
2: Uh, third debate. Yeah. So we got the third debate. So what do you think? What is the game plan to closing the gap with the former president?
5: Well, one,
3: I think just the fact that he's been missing an action on so much of this stuff. Um, you know, he doesn't think he needs to go out uh, and debate. And I don't think that that's what I'm seeing on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire. I think those voters think you have to earn their vote. Uh, so I'm showing up not only at debates, but I'm, I've i done 80 of the 99 counties in Iowa. I'm going to do all 99. I'll be the only ca- candidate to do that. And we're uh, starting a big New Hampshire push with the town halls and everything. So that's really what you, what you have to do. Um, you know, on this issue, what we've seen here, you know, I've been leading on it. Uh, We led on the refugees. Now every candidate's followed suit. We've led on planting the flag, say, don't send aid to the Gaza Strip. All that's going to do is Hamas is going to commandeer that uh, and they're going to use that. You seek the the, uh, release of hostages and the unconditional defeat of Hamas. And that should be our focus, not sending money that they're going to be able to use. So we're really leading on these issues. I think the debate will show that we've been able to lead on these issues. And look, people are going to have to make a judgment. Now that we're getting closer, uh, you are seeing more voters pay closer attention. And I think the question is, is, you know, we've got to win this election in 2024. I've got a great record of political success. But more importantly than that, we've got to deliver on all these things. Brian, we talk about it, you know, this border. Remember, that was Donald Trump's number one promise. And uh, had he built the wall and had Mexico pay for it, Biden would not have been able to get away with all the nonsense he's done. Done. So we've got to deliver. And I have a record of delivering on 100 percent of my promises as governor in a way that no governor has been able to do. And we'll do the same thing as president. I but think that's what people want to see. It,
2: but as you know, Paul Ryan gave him one point four billion dollars. He had to repurpose defense funds because nobody came across for
3: him.
4: Well, but that's the thing.
3: But, but, yeah, but, Brian, are you a leader or not? Do you get things done or you're not? I mean, that's an excuse that, oh, you know, that you had a Republican Congress. You're the leader. You need to deliver this. This should have been a day one priority. He should have declared it a national emergency on day one. He could have repurposed funds on day one if he wanted to do it. And he could have told Paul Ryan, I'm not doing your tax bill. I'm not doing anything until you deliver what we need to do. And he didn't turn those screws on them. He really turned the legislative agenda over to Ryan. And Ryan didn't want a wall. Ryan was a pre-Trump Republican. He was a, a, an establishment Republican. He 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 is weak on immigration. So that was a that's you know yeah. it's all about leadership. So are you delivering the results or not? And like I don't want to be in a situation where we're making excuses again about why things haven't right. gotten done. Governor, you got to find a way to get things done.
2: I know you're busy, but on Sunday, 60 Minutes did a whole feature on immigration. You know what they focused on? The the flights to Martha's Vineyard. Do you think they are <laughs> they are targeting you because of the way? Uh, you went back at them when they tried to nail you on the vaccines. <laughs>
3: I, I didn't. I don't watch sixty minutes, so I didn't. I didn't see what was happening. But um, you know, I think that they've obviously uh, not not uh, covered themselves in glory with a lot of the things that they've done when they tried to target me over the COVID stuff. It really blew up in their face, and so um, you know, I think a lot of, they've lost a lot of credibility over the years.
2: All right, Governor, what's your final message? I know you got to run.
3: No excuses in 24. We got to get the job done. I'll get the job done, and I won't let you down as president. Thanks. Uh,
2: it's, he's going to be hard to outwork. I'll tell you that. Governor Ron DeSantis. Thanks so much. See ya. You got it. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. When we come back, I'll take your calls. Bottom of the hour. Katie Pavlich. We're watching uh, what's going on in three separate screens. We got some rioting over in Beirut outside our embassy. We got the West Bank where there's some protests because it calls for a day of rage and a lot of focus on the border. Will there be a place? for Palestinian refugees, non-Hamas, to get out into Egypt. Because Jordan doesn't want them and Egypt doesn't want them. Well, who's going to be stuck with them?
0: Brian Kilmeade Show.
1: It's Brian Kilmeade.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory—
1: radio that makes you think this is the brian kilmeade show
4: first of all uh, it's sad when when a hospital is uh, struck or explodes uh, and people die that aren't related to combat that's categorically first thing second thing we never target hospitals third thing we analyzed the events that occurred around that hospital and according to our military intelligence analysis what happened was that the, it was a failed rocket that was fired by the Islamic Jihad, a smaller but very lethal terror organization in the Gaza Strip. They fired a rocket. It misfired, exploded, and landed on the hospital, and that is what happened.
2: That's exactly what happened. You know who else knows that? They have transcripts of the exchange with Islamic Jihad. They were able to pick it up, not transcript. They were to actually pick up the audio of them communicating with each other, saying, basically, what was that? I cannot believe it. You shot it from the cemetery? Yeah, you shot it from the cemetery. Uh, look what it hit. Oh, my God, look what it hit. So the IDF didn't do it. They supplied that. They supplied video, saying, listen, there's no way an aerial strike, when we weren't in the area, provided that. we were. We didn't do it. And that got out. You know who retweeted it and put it out there, if the translation's correct, and said it was Islamic Jihad? Al Jazeera. So... The king of Jordan cancels with our president. The president of Egypt cancels with our president. The Palestinian Authority cancels a meeting with the president because the Islamic Jihad blew up their own hospital. That is such an insult to the country. And they get billions from us, billions.
1: Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show.
3: Paging my traditional Republican colleagues. It's time to get off the sidelines, break away from the extremists, get in the arena so we can find a bipartisan path forward. House Democrats want to be reasonable here, but the Republicans are unable to function on their own right now. He's right.
2: Akeem Jeffries is 100% right. And he went on to say, listen, I know we lost the election. We lost the majority. I, I admit it. Uh, the guy you're going to put as speaker didn't admit it, so he's able to play that card. Here we go again. And you just imagine if you're him. You watch 14 rounds with Kevin McCarthy. Then you watch Matt Gates blow up Kevin McCarthy with only seven other people supporting him, 210 not supporting him. Then you wait two weeks for another vote. Then you find you think it's going to be Steve Scalise and Steve Scalise because I, I it's not even worth taking a vote. I only got a hundred and something supporters, and I'm losing them to Jim Jordan. And then Jim Jordan comes out there and gets 200 votes. He's 20 short. So what are you going to do? If you're Keem Jeffries, you could look at the most mature guy in the room, and Republicans only have themselves to blame. Katie Pavlich, Katie Pavlich likes to go in, in between the numbers and use her sources to move this story forward. But, Katie, do you expect a vote today for Jim Jordan, is, or is he, going to, uh, is he going to end up where he is right now? Well, the word is that
8: there's been negotiations happening, you know, minute by minute, trying to twist arms and that they are going to come to the floor around 11 o'clock. Uh, about an hour and a half from now, and continue these rounds of voting. Uh, you know, Jim Jordan was pretty defiant in saying that he was willing to go multiple rounds, even if it took more than 15, uh, as it took Kevin McCarthy uh, the first time. Uh, and the question is, well, if he can't make it, who is next for the nomination? And at some point, Republicans look at this and say, who wants that job? Who wants to be put up? You know, to be in the same position. And it keeps happening, despite the fact that, you know, Jim Jordan came after Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise endorsed Jim Jordan, uh, voted for him, and yet still can't get him over the finish line. So Republicans are in a position where, you know, they don't have a speaker. They can't move their agenda forward. They can't continue to aggressively pursue oversight of the Biden administration. They can't aggressively pursue a defense of uh, Israel in the middle of a war that could escalate quickly to a regional war. So they're in a bad spot. And um, I think it's interesting that Matt Gates has not volunteered to put his name up for speaker either.
5: Right. He would
2: get three votes probably um, and maybe one of the eight. Uh, but most of those people just got in because they saw an opportunity. I don't think they could have forecast it will be two weeks without one. I remember Gates came around and said, wait a second, what do you mean we're waiting a week to have a vote? McHenry came, the temporary speaker, and he said, I don't know why we're waiting. We should have a vote right away. He didn't even understand what he did. Couldn't possibly have a vote right. We had no idea who had consensus or not. To even push it forward. Who? What message did they have? What would Steve Scalise do? Was he healthy enough to do it? What would Jim Jordan do as Speaker that Kevin McCarthy couldn't? After all, he was supporting him. So evidently, people didn't like behind the scenes, like the New York delegation and people like Congressman Bacon didn't like behind the scenes that they were being threatened. I guess it was an email to Bacon's wife saying your, your husband's career is over if he doesn't go for Jim Jordan. So that made everyone's head get bent out of shape. Giamondi, uh, uh, uh J- Jimenez, was it? Jimenez over in uh, Florida? Yeah, Jimenez over in Florida. He's uh, he also said it was personal with him. So I don't know what's going to change, it except maybe an apology.
8: I'm not sure much is going to change. Um, you know, Republicans have this problem where they are staunchly against the people that they are nominating. They got around to endorsing Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. He he won the nomination eventually. The problem was that he gave into this rule of vacating the chair, and then other Republicans joined with Matt Gates to do that, including, uh, let's not forget, all of the Democrats voted to create this problem as well. It's not just a Republican problem. All the Democrats voted to oust the Republican Speaker on behalf of eight or so Republicans. Um, so in terms of whether this changes or not, the numbers look like they're they're not changing. They're, there's been word that, they, that people who are voting still against Jim Jordan, have not liked the tactics that have been deployed by his team to try and threaten rather than convince that he can get the job done and negotiate, you know, what these members of Congress may want out of a new speaker. Uh, In terms of who's next, there's been some talk about the current uh, Speaker Tim 4 being maybe the next name since he's essentially been in the temporary job for a couple of weeks now. But it was no surprise when all this went down that it was going to take a while I mean, I had heard that it may take months uh, to get a new speaker because people can't agree on who it should be, and then as I already mentioned, people don't want the job. I mean, it's not a it's not a job that a Republican goes into uh, and comes out in a popular fashion. I mean, John Boehner did not leave the position popular. Paul Ryan went into the position after people begged him to be the speaker. He did not want the job. He he took one for the team and went in and did it and, and left very unpopular. So it's not it's not it's not the best position for someone to be in if they're trying to be popular. And at some point, given there's so many people with different interests, naturally not everybody is going to be satisfied uh with the decisions that have to be made. Um, But, you know, there's been a lot of talk, too, of the fact that Republicans are understanding that in the House things are a team sport when it comes to moving an agenda forward, Um, and it shouldn't be based on personal animus. But here they are, and uh, we'll see what happens at 11 o'clock today. As I mentioned, Jim Jordan had said previously he's willing to be on the floor as long as it takes to get the votes. Uh, There has been a lot of criticism as well uh, from constituents that a lot of these ballots that are going around uh, in committee with these The voting before they bring it to a floor to try and avoid some embarrassing mess in public. People don't like that. They don't like that there's secret balloting going on, they don't like the debate over who should be in charge of the speakership. Uh, is not out in the public. So that could also be coming up as a problem with these lawmakers as well as constituents call in and want more transparency
2: about the process. I mean, the New York delegation says it might be too much of a risk to vote for Jim Jordan. I never thought a speaker vote would risk somebody politically. It's not like you're voting for tax, a tax hike or or a Joe Biden pat on the back. But evidently they're it's a bit of a risk. And I think uh, Congressman D'Esposito voted for Lee Zeldin. I mean, what are you doing if you vote for Lee Zeldin? What do you – Kevin McCarthy said, don't vote for me. I'm putting my vote in for Kevin McCarthy. Steve Scalise says, I'm done. I'm putting – you know that you are blowing up your own power in the White House. In, yeah. Why are you even there? Like, are you – I'm just flabbergasted these people are so short-sighted.
9: Well,
8: look, uh, I, I'm not really clear on – what the risk to Jim to having Jim Jordan in the speakership is I'm not even uh, maybe maybe it's that they feel like he's not moderate enough that he came in on the tea party wave has been a rabble-rouser uh, in congress you know maybe he he isn't as middle of the road or, that they would like I'm not sure but they're going to have to calculate the risk calculate the calculation is of the risk of looking like they can't govern not mm-hmm. having a speaker for weeks and weeks on end or choosing someone for leadership to be in the speaker's position and to negotiate some terms so they have more say about the way things go in the future. Um, so that's the decision they have to make. In the meantime, as you, you mentioned already, you know the Democrats and Hakeem Jeffries are you know parading themselves out after foisting the House into yeah. this position with their votes as the adults in the room, the people who can govern, the people who have – one nominee as they go to the floor with these votes, and the Democrats all nominate Hakeem Jeffries rather than nominating a series of of people they haven't decided on. So, the, you know, that's what people are watching. Um, I do think that while the speaker's race doesn't necessarily interest everyday Americans who are concerned about getting to work, high gas prices, inflation, concerned about the national security now with with what's happened in the Middle East, um, and and everything else that Americans deal with on a daily basis, education, for example, I do think the longer this drags out, the the more that they will pay attention to it and be dismayed, again, at how Washington is functioning.
2: I want you to hear what Newt Gingrich said. Cut 20. Excuse me. Cut 30.
4: I'd be for 15 votes, frankly, to bring McCarthy back. The fact is, I have no faith that you can put this together right now. Now, again, if I'm all for Jordan having an opportunity tomorrow, I hope he can win. I'd much rather have a new speaker than have a speaker pro tem. But I wrote my newsletter on the grounds that my hunch is that 200 votes is about what he's going to get. 200 votes uh, is, is much higher than Scalise got. And Scalise was the majority leader. Uh, and my sense from talking to people in the House tonight is that in the next vote, he might actually get fewer, not more votes. If that happens, we can't sit around... And suck our thumbs and hope the world will wait until the House Republicans get their act together. You're, you're, every day we're closer to the end of the continuing resolution. Every day we're closer to a huge age package uh, for for Israel that has to be passed. So, uh, so that's where he stands,
2: and it makes Republicans look bad. I want to get Katie Pavlich to weigh in on the 2024 campaign. RFK Jr. They did a since he decided to be an independent, they did a quick poll, and it turns out. He takes more votes from President Trump than Biden. Mm -hmm. Does that surprise you? Do you think it's accurate?
8: Uh, It does not surprise me. Um, I'm not sure it is accurate, but I think it is a reflection of how people in this country feel about the choices that they've been presented with in the 2024 election. And, you know, RFK Jr. is a smart guy. He, He looked at the way that the DNC was handling the, the Democratic primary and circling the wagons around Joe Biden, despite the fact that Democrats have said they want someone else to be running and said, I'm going to run as an independent. Uh, he has, you know, he has uh, positions on a variety of different issues that are not conservative, um, but they are popular and they are populist in some ways. And so. Uh, you know, people who maybe are not thrilled with the way that the Repub- Republican field has gone either are looking for a third option. You have to remember the independents in this country are the largest middle that we've seen ever. Uh, there are more people saying that they don't fit into the Democrat-Republican party uh, than we've ever seen before. So they're taking a look at him. That can obviously change, um, but certainly the Trump campaign cannot be happy mm. about it, and uh, he'll probably be seeing a new nickname for him soon Well, yeah, <laughs> the he's, former president. Yeah,
2: head-to-head. He, uh, by, with, with RFK in the race, Biden beats Trump by seven. Here's what Trump told me last week about RFK.
5: Well, he's a Democrat. I think it's probably helpful of me. I th- He's a Democrat. Look, he's a Kennedy. Number one, you put the name Kennedy, that's a Democrat. But if you look at his environmental stance, he closed up New York. He wouldn't let uh, pipelines go through to Massachusetts and various other places go through New York State. He was very, very tough. He was brutal on the environment. He actually destroyed... Andrew Cuomo. He actually destroyed him because Andrew Cuomo wouldn't do a thing without his approval. And New York State got left behind. The environmental stuff that he approved is is right. just terrible. So, no, he's a Democrat. I think it's probably very good for us. I mean, who knows? I mean, mm-hmm. you'll tell me. We'll, we'll talk about it next November.
2: <laughs> so we'll see. He's got his eye. One thing about Trump, he, got, he has his opposition research down. You bring up an yeah. opponent, he knows where to attack and where their vulnerabilities are.
8: Well, I mean, that's, he's absolutely right. I mean, RFK Jr. has been sold uh, as this, this moderate, right? This, this person who is willing to be, you know, not as far left as the Democrats, but he actually is very far left on a number of issues. Uh, President Trump mentioned his position on climate change. Uh, He he is very much uh, for shutting down American energy, which of course puts the United States into a more vulnerable position economically, but also in terms of national security and foreign policy. He is for using taxpayer money to bail out student loans, uh, especially now for these um, students who go to these Ivy League schools who are signing proclamations that it's basically fine to kill Jews uh, and their children inside of their homes. Um, so he is he is very, very liberal. Uh, he's he has good positions on medical freedom and allowing people to make their their own choices when it comes to what goes into their body. And he's against vaccine mandates. That's a very good thing. But otherwise, he, he is he is a Democrat. And quite frankly, mm-hmm. his positions on a lot of these issues are not mainstream or moderate. They are very far left.
2: Yeah. So uh, look for the Trump team to push back and maybe every Republican candidate. Katie, interesting times in Washington and around the world. Katie Pavlich, thank you. Indeed. Thanks, Brian. Great you, to talk with you. You got it. one 408 I'll come back. Take your calls. We're also following the protest outside our embassy in Lebanon. It looks ugly. I just saw a guy take out a machine gun and start shooting at protesters. I couldn't believe it.
1: Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
7: Ochenklaas.
0: Jeffries. Babin. Jordan. Bacon. McCarthy.
2: Dumbass. (laughs) So I was on set of Outnumbered. We were taking the vote live, and this guy votes, uh, Congressman Bacon doesn't vote for Jim Jordan. And it just makes, after the two weeks to think about where Republicans were at, we watched him get, lose 20, but that was the first. I did not know my wi my mic was open. But next thing you know, by the time I walk upstairs out Outnumbered, my seventh hour of broadcasting, my last words were dumbass. Those were the words that were being carried everywhere. Everyone's like, wow, your mic was open. Your mic was on. My mic was open for six hours and 58 minutes. Nobody cared what I said. But I say one word on an off mic moment, and everyone's like, wow, can't believe you said that. You know, no, one's, no one's really upset that I said it. No one said I'm wrong that I said it. I, I am flab- I am stunned I've never seen somebody commit political suicide, a group of people commit political suicide like this. And then after two weeks of therapy, people going home on their own and coming back, they're still doing the same thing.
4: Is not it crazy? It's crazy. It's disappointing,
6: especially with everything going on in the world at the same time. Like, it's like, what is the answer?
5: Um, But but yes, that is very funny. People are always like at the edge of their seat for what you're going to say, Brian. But right. It, it yeah.
2: Was that. I just had the edge of my seat, unless I say it like a hot mic moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I feel. I've I could not be more frustrated. And and when you watch Hakeem Jeffries basically sound like Mr. Logic, who out there is a moderate or independent who says uh, we'd be so much better off with a, a guy, you know, a guy that's so cool headed and seems so reasonable. We have no idea if he's reasonable. We know his background. He is way to the left. He's another New York uh, left wing Democrat. Good looking guy, very well composed, great speaker, uh, you know, understands the answers to the questions and understands how to be politically correct. But he just looks over to the right. And and my and I think my analogy really works. It's like the World Series. The team goes into one team, goes and takes the field and the other one starts fighting each other in the dugout. And after a while, these guys are like, are these guys going to come out and play? Yeah, I don't like them. I want to beat them, but I can't. They should stop fighting each other so I can beat them. And now I don't even think, I actually think if you gave these guys sodium pentothal, I don't think they're happy about it at all. Here's what Tudor Dixon said yesterday, cut 31.
0: No, I think we all agree that they need to come up with a speaker. They have the majority of people supporting Jim Jordan. They have 20 folks that decided that their personal agenda was more important. But this started two weeks ago when Matt Gates made this decision, and he had no plan. This is why you don't do something like this without a plan. There wasn't a camera he didn't want to have his face in front of last week. But I certainly haven't seen much of Matt Gates today. Last night, he was saying he had it in single digits. We had 20 Republicans that did not choose Jim Jordan today. I certainly hope that with the state of the country and the state of the world, Republicans come together. And tomorrow we can call Jim Jordan speaker
2: (laughs) Tudor Dixon. Can't figure it out. Either either can I remember she wanted to be governor of Michigan. I think she's very successful podcaster now. Uh, She goes all over the channel. It's true. It makes it harder for people like uh, Congressman Rogers to be Senator Rogers in in places like Michigan, because it, it seems as though your party is so unreasonable even though I think they're for sure going to take the Senate if things stay this way. I thought they could hold on to the House. That seems to be slipping by.
1: From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade.
2: How fortunate am I? I mean, here we are, attentions at a world-time high, uh, all-time high in the Middle East, and the Middle East are always uh, a tense environment. I come to you from 40th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. We're heard around the country, around the world, but uh, here in the Brian Kilmeade Show, we have in studio, if you're smart enough to watch Fox Nation, uh, General David Petraeus. His book is now out today, uh, yesterday. It is now Wednesday. It is called Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 uh, to uh, Ukraine. Now we can maybe add in. Gaza, That's, uh, General David Petraeus. Second edition, Brian. And Andrew Roberts. And Andrew Roberts, a genius. Uh, he's been in here before. Great pairing, General. Who,
6: who picked two? He uh, proposed the idea. You know, he's, this is his 20th book. Wow. Uh, he's never had a co-author before. He's always done it himself. Right after the Russians invaded Ukraine. We know each other very, very well. We've done a number of events together around his books or various other things. He's interviewed me on stage a number of times, and I've done the same. Uh, and he rung me up and he said we should write a book together that provides the military historical context for ukraine so it would be again the evolution of warfare from 1945 to now as you note yep there's probably a second edition in the offing that will have to address this terrible current crisis that's ongoing that i'm sure we'll discuss but it was his idea and and i thought what a terrific opportunity you know, I actually wanted to write something about Iraq and Afghanistan in particular, but not as a tell-all, but as a history. And, and what's interesting is the editor for those two cha- – I, I did those two chapters plus Vietnam and then obviously back and forth with everything else very extensively. Uh, they said, you know, you can't write this in the third person the way you have. You can't write – and then General Petraeus went to see Prime Minister Maliki and raise these new concerns. You should do it in the first person. Those two chapters, unlike the rest of the book, traditional third person uh, it's written in the first person and I wrote it and so I was eager to do that actually and I welcomed the opportunity to do that and then obviously to re- review all these other cases
2: how important it is it for an effective general to really understand military history
6: it's hugely important again the lessons of history are not crystal clear they don't they're not always they're always different circumstances situations context but from that I think you get some very general important lessons, and the one we discussed uh, on air earlier this morning, which we went back to the introduction and made even more explicit, which is the critical component of strategic leadership. A strategic leader is the person at the very top of a country or of a military coalition. Uh, The strategic leader has to perform four tasks very well if you have a shot at winning. Get the big ideas right is task number one. The right strategy requires an understanding in depth of the context of their strengths and weaknesses of your forces, their forces, the human terrain, all of this. You have to communicate the big ideas effectively throughout the breadth and depth of the organizations that you lead, country, military command, the rest of the world that has a stake in the outcome of the conflict. You have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas, uh, driving the campaign plan by what you do, your battle rhythm, attracting great people, keeping them, allowing those not measuring up to move on, the metrics you use, the example, the energy, the inspiration you provide. And then the fourth task is to formally sit down and determine how you need to refine the big ideas so you can re- re- repeat the process again and again and again. And if you apply that to the current this current tragic situation uh, in the wake of this horrific uh violence, this barbaric uh, violence visited on innocent Israeli civilians, over 1,300 of them now, uh, as we understand it, uh, Saturday a week ago, Um, you then look at the role of Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's the strategic leader here. Uh, He has a military uh, command as well, the Israeli Defense Force Chief of Staff, who will be the, the strategic leader for the military effort. But he's got to get the big ideas right. There's one big idea out there right now. That is we must destroy Hamas and also dismantle the Hamas political wing, if you will. Because keep in mind, they're not just a terrorist organization together with Islamic Jihad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They're, they also have the, the government, essentially, uh, of the Gaza Strip, of the territory. That's the political wing. But 81
2: percent of that is in poverty. Oh, it's Uh, it's terrible. It's
6: just terrible. I mean it's among the the most impoverished places in the world. But if you take that down, then what? And I am sure that the Israeli military leadership, um, based on the lessons of history, some of which we learned the hard way, you know, if – I asked, for example, in Kuwait prior to the invasion of Iraq, I was a two-star general then commanding the great 101st Airborne Division. He said, excuse me, can you give us a little more detail on what happens after we get to Baghdad and topple the, the regime, the Saddam Hussein regime? And they said, look, you just get us to Baghdad, Dave. We'll take it from there. Obviously, our post-conflict planning was inadequate. Uh, the assumptions that we had were invalidated. We then made some terrible mistakes bad big ideas firing the Iraqi military without telling how they're going to provide for their families. And then firing the bath party down to a level that included the bureaucrats we needed to run the country without an agreed reconciliation process. So you created hundreds of thousands of individuals whose incentive was to oppose the new Iraq rather than support it. Now, again, the Israeli defense force, keen observers of history, uh, saw that episode. It took us years to rebound from that. Um, They are, I'm sure, asking, "Okay, Prime Minister, got it. We can destroy Hamas. Keep in mind, it's going to be very costly. It's going to take it may take a good bit longer than people think. We think three months. It depends. You you truly cannot answer that question. And no military leader should other than to say it depends and then lay out the factors on which it depends. Uh, But if you think of. How long it took – again, lesson to history – how long did it take uh, the Iraqi security forces with American support to clear Mosul, a city of well over a million people at that time, of the Islamic State? Uh, By the way, Mosul was where my headquarters was as a two-star after the fight to Baghdad, so I know it well. It took them nine months to do that fully. And again, you have to clear sequentially, progressively. Now the Israeli defense forces, much more well-equipped – Better trained, more experienced, and all the rest of this. But still, this is not going to be, you know, right. a hundred hour ground defensive like the, so the first Gulf War. My feeling is,
2: too. I, I, when you guys in Iraq, obviously the, post, the day after should have been planned better. No one said this out loud. You know what my hunch is? You guys gave, set up a no fly zone for the Kurds, and they thrived. They set up a good government there. They really thrived. You said, you give me protection from Saddam? I don't want to leave Iraq. I will, have, but they thrived. And I thought, with the exiles in your ear—not your ear, but the Bush and Cheney ear—saying, "We got it. We get rid of Saddam. We'll be fine. Uh, we'll be—we'll we'll be greeted like liberators. After all, if they saw our power in '93, they were greeted as liberators in '93.
6: We were greeted as yeah. liberators in 2003. Saddam didn't—they didn't love Saddam. Yeah, uh, in but especially- the
2: will were mad you for letting them get uh, for not for not supporting their uprising correct under bush 41 is I, I that think correct we as you move past that, that
6: cuz keep in mind we also had a no fly zone for the southern part of iraq right. um, no the shia actually when we came in again i was part of that fight we in fact we liberated the first major city uh, in iraq during the fight to baghdad najaf the holiest city in shia islam as you will recall uh 400,000 people or so give yes. or take um and again i, I Tough fight, few days, all of a sudden, they, the Saddam Fadim, you know, there's collapse. And I called my boss and I said, hey, boss, good news and bad news. Good news is we own Najaf. What's the bad news? Bad news is we own Najaf. What do you want us to do with it? And, again, this is the first inkling that the post-conflict planning may have not been fully uh, thought through. And he said, okay, we'll call those guys that said, you know, when you get to Baghdad, they'll take it from there. I said, okay, well, we're a little short of Baghdad, but how about taking this one over? Uh, And the problem was, of course, that it wasn't just that the Saddam elements collapsed. It was that all the government disappeared, Um, even in this Shia city. uh, We were hoping the bureaucrats would stay around, that the police would stick around. You know, obviously the military was either surrendering or deserting, but it didn't happen. So all of a sudden we owned it. And and again, we had to leave an entire U.S. Army brigade of about – 3,500, 4,000 troops to administer that. Well, that's combat power that we would have liked to have had uh, when we went into Baghdad or later when we jumped up to Mosul. Eventually, we got them out of there. So, but, but it's this. So it's the then what in Gaza. And this is even more challenging, more difficult. By the way, the military Hughes, operation I to clear. A I, yep. no, like you
2: don't get up in the morning and before 9-11 and say you knew Iraq was a problem. Clinton knew it was a problem. Bush 41 knew that Saddam was not going away. So I get it. But after 9-11, you have to quickly come up with a battle plan for Afghanistan. And then you thought uh, Iraq is going to be a belligerent problem. Let's handle this now. We could discuss the nuances of it. But for the Israelis, they probably do think about how do we get rid of Hamas. They do think about what if Hezbollah attacks. Because it is the neighborhood they think about all the time. And I ask you, do you think that they are more prepared for what we do if Hamas is eliminated from uh, Gaza than you guys were? And what happens when Saddam is eliminated from Baghdad?
6: I think this is actually even tougher. And let me lay this out. First of all, I think the military... You the they at least man- have a plan? The military, I'm not sure. I think if they did, they would announce it. I think, in fact, there should be announcement of not just, again, the big idea we're going to destroy Hamas, which in itself, that tactical operation is going to be... Just fiendishly difficult. Because
2: they're going to hide.
6: They're going to be able They're going to hide. They'll use human shields, shields, civilians, the hostages. There's nearly 200 of them. They'll be in tunnels. They'll have improvised. If they're as creative in the defense as they were in the offense, this is going to be diabolically difficult. There are going to be very considerable casualties all around, including not just Israeli soldiers but also innocent civilians and plenty of Hamas because, again, Hamas is an extremist organization. These are not reconcilable people. They have two alternatives in life. They can come in with their hands up or they're going to be captured for a reduced sentence or they're going to be captured or killed. Um, So, but that's that's doable. It's going to be really, really hard and the decision makers need to understand how hard and how costly and the damage and destruction that will be done to civilian infrastructure. But they've really got to figure out To whom do they give this? Again, remember that old adage, the pottery barn rules, you break it, you own it. They're going to break not just Hamas, the extremist group, but also the political wing. So then who's going to administer the territory? Keep in mind that the political wing um, does social services. It provides basic services to the people. It runs schools, health care, everything. Yeah, and and so who is – And you don't have an answer
2: to that. I know you're asking rhetorical. Do you have an answer if they put you in charge?
6: Is it possible you could have an interim international authority? Um, I mean, it's possible because it's conceivable because we've obviously laid this out. But who could, who could fund it? Who could lead it? Where are the? What about the Arab countries in the region uh, that express understandable concern about the plight of the Palestinian people? Uh, this would be an incredible opportunity to do something about that. The problem there, though, Brian, is not even enough that you're just going to administer. This is not just going to be governance and nation building and, again, restoration of basic services, repair yeah. of damage, and all the rest of that. This is going to it's be. It's not
2: Germany after World War two.
6: It's not. Uh, right. This is. they're also going to have to fight a counterinsurgency. And they're going to
2: fight Iran Wants Everything that you're t- t- explaining, they, they don't want they, any part so of it. They will do everything to make sure they're you're gonna, unsuccessful. They're
6: going to fund the remnants of Hamas, of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, anyone else who will try to prevent this from happening, just as they did not want to see the rapprochement, the extension of the Abraham Accords to Saudi Arabia, which would have been mutual recognition, which ironically... I believe, would have included some assurances for the Palestinians in the West Bank. But so there has to be a vision of this component, the what next. And, by the way, I think it should address the Palestinian people, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank as well.
2: Interesting. I mean, remember, they were talking about in the 90s and the 80s have a bridge from Gaza to the West Bank. And they said, well, that was then they find out that uh, uh, they thought Yasser Arafat was too secular. And he also said, if I accept this deal, I'll be killed tomorrow. A lot of people living on that. They say we take we take the whole country or nothing. So Tom Warwick uh, wrote in The New York Times today. This is the plan for after. End Hamas's culture of economic corruption in Gaza uh, in the heart of Hamas. Okay, listen to what the Gaza residents want change the educational curriculum, find a path for Gazans to write a constitution, show Gazans that Israel is prepared to help.
6: It's I'm all idealistic. for all of that. Yeah. that. No, I'm for all of that. But there's, that, begs, that begs a very big question. Who's doing that?
2: Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no,
6: I mean, this is the, I know. This Does is, the U.S. have to uh, do that. I'm for all these great, these, you know, this is not overly idealistic. <laughs> this is realistic. This is not outrageous. Right. But who's going to oversee it?
2: General uh, Petraeus is here, very fortuitous for us, but his book is out. It's called Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. And we're also tapping into his knowledge of the Middle East, as you see. The President of the United States is speaking now in Tel Aviv. He's supposed to leave soon and actually sleep in his bed tonight. Brian Kilmeade Show, don't move.
1: You're with Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
4: So
2: the President of the United States gave a speech. We were on the air, uh, but one of the things he brought up was the two-state solution is the only way. Uh, The author of Conflict is with us. One of the co-authors of Conflict is with us. The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine, General David Petraeus uh, and Andrew Roberts. Uh, The General's going to be with us all hour. General, this is going to be three or four minutes, but the President's remarks, two-state solution. I said to you, I think it's dead. You said it has, it can't be dead.
6: Well, there's no alternative. Um, tell me what, what you would do otherwise. Um, the status quo, by the way, is obviously not working. Right. Um, if you have a one-state solution, if you draw the border all the way around to include Gaza and the West Bank, then the Jews in the Jewish democratic state will be outvoted by the Arabs. Right. Uh, so that's not sustainable. Um, If you don't give them the right to vote, then there's going to be a lot of accusations about that that are quite predictable. So you've got to figure out some way to make a two-state or even make it a three-state solution if you want to have Gaza separate and West Bank. The the key is that everyone gets along um, and neither element uh, of these Palestinian entities, whatever they will be called, Mm -hmm. can allow extremists uh, to Populated in their midst, that are going to do to Israel and Israelis what the Hamas extremists and, and Islamic Jihad d- extremists did Saturday a week ago. General, isn't it pretty
2: amazing that uh, Jordan wants nothing to do with the Palestinians yet they're, a lot of their population is Palestinian. Well, they this, said that's, that's why. No. no, this is why. And Again, Egypt they, says the, same so,
6: thing. So, the, the, if you will, the Hashemites, you know, the Hashemite Kingdom, um, those descendants are actually outnumbered in their country. By the Palestinian refugees, which causes, again, them enormous challenges when they're trying to structure elections and you have to right. uh, uh, ensure that, that, again, they're not going to, in a sense, lose control of their own country.
2: I can't do the de- definitive background of the 1978, what it was, Iran was like in 1978, but if it was the old Iran, how much, how much closer to peace in that region would they be? It seems like Iran's behind Hezbollah, behind Hamas, behind Islamic Jihad, and their focus, obsession, seems to be finding a way to throttle and destroy Israel. Obviously, UBS is not, uh, MBS is not the problem in Saudi Arabia. Obviously, Jordan and Egypt aren't the problem. Isn't Iran the problem?
6: Um, There's one of the great truths about the Middle East is that you have to be very clear about who your friends are and who your enemies are. And Iran is our enemy. Iran provided the explosively formed projectiles and other weapons that killed over 600 of our soldiers uh, during the period that I was commander there and and, and engaged there. Uh, There's no question about their nefarious activities. There's no question that they fund Hamas, even though, by the way, they're Shia and Hamas is Sunni. They also fund the Shia militias in Iraq and Syria, also in mm. in Lebanon, Hezbollah, obviously very formidable, the Houthis in Yemen, all of this.
2: I want to get to history. I want to get to Ukraine, yep. too, because we want to find out what we learned in the past, how it fill, figures into the battlefield today, and how to solve some of our problems by looking at some of the mistakes in the past. Brian Kilmeade Show.
1: So busy, you'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
6: Part of the question on the issues of refugees coming to Jordan, and I think I can quite strongly speak on behalf not only of um, 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 uh, Jordan as a nation, but of uh, our friends in Egypt, that is a red line. Uh, because I think that is the plan by certain of the usual suspects to try and create de facto issues on the ground. No refugees in Jordan, no refugees in Egypt.
2: So thanks, King Abdullah of Jordan. It's great to have allies in the area who we give billions of dollars to in Egypt, too. Billions of dollars to just as Senator Menendez with me right now in studios, General David Petraeus. His book's out yesterday. Uh, It's already doing great. It's called Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Uh, General, that's what I would find endlessly frustrating if I'm President Biden. Not only does he not going to take any refugees, and not only does Egypt not want to open up a corridor to let Palestinians through— but he also refused to meet with the president today over a bombing of a hospital, which all evidence now pointing to, including intercepts that the IDF did not do. Same thing with the Egyptian president. I mean, if I'm on a plane, if I'm on the president of the United States. Do I have a move? Do I just have to accept the snub?
6: Well, they're going to call them. They will. They'll have conversations because, again, they need to. They're, they have to be part of the ultimate arrangement in Gaza that we've been talking about yeah. that is so difficult to construct but we should understand again you know other countries have domestic politics too and the challenge in Jordan is that they the descendants of the hashemite tribes which of course include the king uh, are outnumbered in their country by the existing number of palestinian refugees it's a huge drag and drain on their economy uh, they have no resources in that country. All they have is their wits and their human capital. There's no, no oil, no water, no very little of anything. Uh, and they have to be incredibly innovative, creative, and everything else. So they have a huge challenge. They can't take more. And then Egypt's economy is really quite moribund right now. He's facing re-election. There's no question about the outcome, I don't think. But, uh, again, they don't – and remember, Egypt administered – Uh, Gaza for a period of time before uh, the Israelis did for several decades. Nobody wants to do this. The the Mm -hmm. Israelis left in 2005 for a reason. And now what we need to do is find an interim authority that's going to go in there, and it just doesn't do good work for deserving people, if you will, among the neediest people in the world, the Palestinian people, who are caught in the middle of all of this. It also has to have a hard edge to it. It's going to have to have a counterinsurgency campaign uh, because the remnants of Hamas and the Islamic Jihad will be funded by Iran, right. undoubtedly, as they are now. And they're going to try to come back and take control of the territory again. See, you're
2: so diplomatic for a general. I I would get that phone if I'm going up the, the Air Force One steps and I hear that these people canceled on me. I'm 50 miles from their border. I'm flying to the Middle East, putting my... Putting my security at risk. I'm taking a big risk politically too. I'm 80 years old and you're going to tell me now I'm you're not going to see me when I'm there? Isn't that isn't that an insult to our nation as well as me
6: personally? Welcome to the real world, Brian. <laughs> uh, welcome to America. Welcome to the Middle East. This is my, you know, this is where I spent so many years of my you life. You don't take it personal. I know the king very well. We had a ve- I used to meet met him all the time. Um but he's got he, again He's got to see to his interests as well. Uh, he's trying to. Oh, you're in understanding. Help, I know, but you know. I'm just saying. Again, but, again. Welcome, welcome to, the, welcome to the Middle but what, East.
2: What better than see a president face to face and say what General Petraeus just told me? Or just say, hey, listen, I got, I got my own constituency yep. here. This is what I'm worried about. I just want to show you, Mr. Uh, King. Uh, I got intercepts here. They didn't bomb the hospital, and they weren't the one who did the massacre October 7th. They weren't the one that watched babies' heads get cut off. Now the operation in particular, I've been reading a lot about this. For your military perspective, they were able to bust through the fence. They were able to get uh, they were get bulldozers through. They were able to get hang gliders with dune buggies on the other side through. They were able to fly drones and they were able to do surveillance on military bases and penetrate them on the inside. As you look at this operation as we know it, what is your impression?
6: That the Hamas operational security was ramped up incredibly. Uh, that they came to understand the ways in which Shinbet, in particular, the Internal Security Service, uh, but together with Mossad, together with military intelligence and their signals intelligence, but Shinbet in particular, because it's an internal issue, Gaza and the West Bank, uh, they understood how Shinbet has in the past been upstream. It's described in that world. So they're actually seeing something before it happens. They're they have a yeah. sense of what's coming. They're that good. Um, And then they had all of this surveillance apparatus set up, and Hamas must have come to have an understanding of this sufficiently that they could uh, mitigate the risks of their planning being detected, their training and equipping and rehearsing and marshalling and all the rest of this, and even reportedly use those very channels to send disinformation and indicate that, hey, you know what, we're – we're not really planning something. We're going to live together. Look, we got more work visas. Uh, The relationship is better than ever before. And then of course, keep in mind that the internal security services of Israel get distracted by violence in the West bank. So they shifted resources over there. Same with the military. Uh, And also just this enormous domestic turmoil, which had potential threats associated with it had to be focused on as well. Uh, and you had military reservists not wanting to – so all of these issues combined, then right. it's on a on the Shabbat, and then it's a religious observance on top of that. And military readiness is reduced. They're on leave. They're going to – Celebrate So – and then in carrying this out, they very expertly use drones with little explosives to take out the nodes, the communications nodes that actually are the relay for the video feeds and so forth, the other – uh, sensors that they have that convey it back to the command post. So all of a sudden they're blinded at the hour of maximum need and and take advantage of
2: it. In the book, the manuals are recovered. They said they expected Israeli security forces to be there three to five minutes. It was over an hour.
6: Yes. Again, the military. That's so crazy. this wasn't just an intelligence yeah. failure. This was a military readiness failure as well. So it was really, I think, also... Similar to a, a bit, again, before 9-11, there was a lack of imagination sure. about what they could do, just as we couldn't imagine that extremists could get into flight schools and then get into cockpits and then could fly aircraft. And in
2: retrospect, we see Ramsey Youssef was actually practicing that.
6: Exactly. Yep. So,
2: And he was the nephew it's, of KSN. You can
6: always connect dots after the fact. It's hard to do it in, in, before the fact but, or in But real I time. do
2: think it's important to understand now, don't wait till after the conflict ends because you don't know what's coming next. You have to find out what your enemy is capable it, of doing. It, don't you well, agree? Well, first it's of not all, not a matter of pointing fingers.
6: No, first of all, they're trying to find hostages. Second, they're trying to identify what are the defenses of Hamas. If we have to clear every building, every floor, every room, every yeah. cellar, every tunnel, and everything else. And do it progressively and sequentially, and then walled off, or, or at least keep it secure, and leave forces behind to make sure they can't reinfiltrate. Um, we need all the information Absolutely. on the enemy. We can where where are the headquarters? Where are their logistical depots? Where are the explosives caches? Where all of this? You know they recovered
2: a lot, and they got over a thousand bodies. They killed a lot of. Uh, they end up coming in. Victor Davis Hanson was on release Saturday. And he just said, "My first, what's your impression, Victor? Let him go. He said, first thing is, since when you can you kill 29 Americans? And we so laid back about it. Since when can you kidnap 14 Americans and we're not taking the lead on it? That doesn't, that's not the way we should be operating. General Petraeus, do you understand, uh, as a, he's a military historian, you know, too. I know well, him well. He right? wrote, I was is one he, of the savior he,
6: generals in his book. Is actually. he right? Um,
2: should we not, have to not, not,
6: not entirely. Uh, because, first and foremost, the Israelis don't want us in this fight directly they have stated this publicly they do not want u.s military uh, in this fight certainly we're going to help them in every way we can with intelligence with planning if we identify our citizens and our special mission units are within range and we coordinate that perhaps that's a a way in which we might get involved Um, but no i think i think you you have to understand the israeli desire for them to carry this out and not get Americans involved.
2: How how much does it get under your skin as a general that was in both theaters, uh, two surges, that they are using reportedly some of our weapons in Hamas?
4: Very Hamas concerning, is using obviously. Weapons. Sure,
2: four billion dollars we left behind the <sighs> exit of Afghanistan. I I can imagine that that is beyond emotional for you.
6: It was emotional for everyone who served there. I think, uh, but
2: especially the rest and, of the limo life.
6: You know, like. I I said at the time. That I feared that we would come to regret the decision to withdraw. Keep in mind that this is this administration carrying through an agreement that was made by the previous administration. But with, I don't with, possibly with which, think that Trump would have allowed With which I, yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that they made the agreement um, and and they were on 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 glide path. Uh, I thought the administration should have reversed it. I um, mean, you know, they and didn't hold on to Bagram, they, which was the plan. Too. Well, again, they, they, these are some sort of right. tactical issues. We're talking about the big issue, which is, do you have to leave? I know these. And we, for, they right. reversed tons of other. You know, it went back to the uh, United Nations organizations, World Health Organization, the Climate Accord, all this. Uh, and so, it's not as if they had to follow right. through with this. There were alternatives. We could, you know, the situation was was. Uh, frustrating. It was maddening. Our partners were imperfect. There were all kinds of issues that could cause you to throw your hands in the air. But I felt that staying there with 3,500 troops, we hadn't lost a soldier in a year year and a half. The NATO countries all wanted to stay. Uh, I think they had a clearer picture of what was going to happen than we did. Um, And I think the result was not just tragic and heartbreaking for the Afghan people, the bulk of them, Uh, It was disastrous and disastrous overall for For American foreign policy.
2: Do you believe and also
6: sent a a message uh, of uh, inadequate strategic commitment? Um, President Xi seized on that very quickly, said, see, you can't count on the Americans or an unreliable partner, unreliable ally. And they came in, got the rare. And, And oh, by the way, look at what happened as they came out. They're a great power in decline.
2: And then, well, do you think that the Russians try for the rest of Ukraine? If not for the way we left Afghanistan,
6: if if I think that was a factor uh, in Putin's determination that he should invade, there are other. You know, he has these historical grievances. He has this revanchist revisionist, twisted history uh, of Ukraine and right. the fact that it shouldn't have a right to exist, and all the rest of this. And I do think that that was a fact. I think the red line that wasn't a red line may have been a factor. The inadequate response to Crimea and the Donbass was a factor. There's a number of these that all added up, I think, to convince Putin that he would be able to get away with this in a way that he did not. He underestimated not just the Ukrainian defense and and their capabilities. He overestimated his own capabilities. And then I think he underestimated how the U.S. would respond. And if you look at our past, which your
2: book talks about – We have to respond strongly to aggression, and that's the reason we won the Cold War. It wasn't one day. It wasn't one president. It was, you want Korea? We're going to stop you. You want Vietnam? Okay, we're going to make it hell, and we could talk about that conflict. You're looking to take Africa? We're going to put proxy forces. Are you going to be in Central America? You're going to try to take Nicaragua? We're going to make it hell for you. And you guys found that out when the Soviet opened up their books. The last thing they wanted was Truman coming in with an airlift for 11 months to prop up Berlin.
6: No, and you what the key is to be firm, to be consistently firm, uh, to have strategic patience. You know, you don't want to be needlessly provocative that you shouldn't do either. But again, you have to show that there will be consequences for aggression in particular. And this case in of Russia invading Ukraine and the way in which they've done it, you know, this is a force that stealing kids and sending them back to and, Russia. And again, they almost seem to embrace a culture of war crimes. In fact, Andrew Roberts and I have written uh, a piece, I th- believe it will be in the Washington Post, called The Russian Way of War, which is, again, unlike Western countries, we make mistakes. We had Abu Ghraib. We had some others. But we try to avoid those, and then we try to learn from those. We mitigate the risks of it happening again. We adhere to the Geneva Convention. We believe hearts and minds do matter, right. and and you don't win hearts and minds by carrying out operations that create more bad guys than you take off the street. And our
2: great advantage is we got a better product. We don't tell you how to live. We want to give you an opportunity to live. And you pick your government. That's all we want. We don't want to own you. We want to give you an opportunity to live the life you want. Uh, And that's the product that we try to sell around the world and why we won last time. We're kind of getting away from that this time. A few more minutes with uh, General Petraeus. Conflict is now out. you got to pick it up. Don't move.
1: This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want, truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
4: General
2: Portrays is with us. The book Conflict is out, it's already top 20 on Amazon. Uh, And you haven't felt the impact of Fox and Friends and this radio show yet.
6: We're waiting for the Fox bump.
2: Right. And the New York Times left, so I'm sure it'll be there. It's called The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. And I'm going to be talking to you. I'm lucky enough to interview you at the Union Club next week. So that'll be great. We'll talk about this. Mm -hmm. But you always talk. I interviewed you before at another great event over in Atlanta. Um, I forgot it was uh, uh, Houston. Excuse me. So it was a a West Point grad there who's now president. Great veterans organization. Yes. So, so, General, you talk to me about your concern about a polit- if you want to be strong internationally, you've got to be strong politically. How bad do we look without a speaker right now?
6: Well, I just did the, the pre-book tour book tour in the U.K. Also was in Warsaw and uh, Warsaw in particular because it was the Warsaw Security Forum um, on their board. And, and so you have a huge gathering of international figures there, very heavy NATO representation. And the question they all had for me is what is going on in Washington? And it's a legitimate question. Uh, and they're concerned that we can't get stuff done, that it, it doesn't seem to be a path forward for this or that. Um, my hope is, obviously, that the House can sort this out, that they can get a leader. And then there will be, there's bipartisan support in the House for continued support for Ukraine, obviously huge support for Israel. Uh, there's some other things we had to package with that, perhaps something involving Taiwan, the southern border, and, and let's not forget FEMA. Because of the greater incidence of mm-hmm. really terrible storms and wildfires and all the rest of this. All of these, I think, are very legitimate uh, needs, and we should fund those. And we have the capacity to do all that. I don't agree with those that say, well, if we do Ukraine, we can't support Israel or Vi- or we can't do the Indo-Pacific. We can do this. The U.S. is the, the, the world's greatest superpower. We can keep more plates spinning and everyone else in the rest of the world with our allies and partners helping us. And by the way, Europeans have stepped up big time. But, but they say Ukraine.
2: that I, I talked to a lot of people, too. Uh, a lot of them were Republicans and say, I'm tired of spinning those plates. Why are we spinning those plates? Why because am it's I in our money?
6: national interest. It's clearly in our national interest. We need
2: a leader to explain that.
6: Yeah. No, I. Regularly. You're, you're no question. No question about it. We have to do that just as it was in our national interest, whether Republican or Democrat, to stay strong on the Cold War. Um, again, these are – and these are connected, by the way. I remember some, a, a prime minister in a major Southeast Asian country, uh, I went. Out, I was meeting with him right after the red line turned out not to be a red line in Syria, and he said, General, you know that that reverberates out here, that, that echoes, and it undermines – the deterrence that you're seeking to achieve in the most important region of the world, which is of course the Indo-Pacific,
2: and why it was important to take Salmani out, to take Al Baghdadi out, to put troops into Syria but not take them out. Right. Last last question and to you. And we are
6: we have sustained them, right. uh, and and in in Iraq as well, and in Iraq at the request of the Prime Minister publicly. Why, why he said is it
2: that. partisan to enforce? Why is it partisan to reinforce the border?
6: I don't think it is partisan to reinforce the border. How did this I, happen? I, I, I think we should I, I, again. You guys do domestic politics. I don't. I'm non-political, but, is it, but, but, is it? but it is an issue. That is a. That's not just a security issue. It's a an issue for our states and cities that are struggling to accommodate at the huge numbers. Even those that are, even some cases the so-called sanctuaries that welcome, they're right. overwhelmed by this. And so we have to have what would really be helpful is actually if we had policy, not just uh,
2: awesome. Uh, uh, which is, by the way, that's a great point, General uh, Petraeus. Pick up his book, Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. It really makes sense. These these battles build on each other. you will understand why we're at where we're at today. Thanks, General.
6: Good to be with you, Brian. Thank you. From the Fox News radio studios in
1: Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kill Me Show. I come to you from 48th and 6th, about 20 blocks from where there was a big Palestinian rally. Really happy. Four blocks from when there was one last week. And then yesterday there was dueling rallies between the Palestinians, uh, pro palestinians and pro-Hamas. And pro-Israeli. I didn't think it was a question, but evidently in America, it's a question. It's a question of Columbia, a question of the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, just places like that, just minor institutions, kind of scary. Ken Paxton standing by, Martha McCallum in about 15 minutes. So let's get to the big three.
1: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three.
4: Number three. If Jordan can't win and if Scalise can't win, the people you should really blame are the eight Republicans who are Benedict Arnolds, who are traitors, who joined with the Democrats to cause total chaos? Hey, that is uh,
2: Newt Gingrich. He's as flabbergasted as we all are. The embarrassment and frustration reaches a new high, should I say low? As Jim Jordan falls twenty votes shy of the speakership, there'll be a new vote today. But little sign of anything being any different. You know who gets hurt by this? Our country.
0: Number two. Israel, you can't hide. Oh, can they-
2: Uh, That is the protesters, as I alluded to, at NYU, picking the wrong side. From the squad to college campuses, confused, disloyal Americans, seem to have trouble recognizing who our friends are and who are the monsters. We review the teams for them.
7: Number one.
4: I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team.
2: Other team, Islamic Jihad, they're not a team, they're terrorists. President Lanza in Israel for a one-and-done meet-and-greet with Netanyahu. As Jordan's king, uh, Fatah's farcical leader, and Egypt's president all cancel huddles with him after a Gaza hospital bombing, which has all been proven to be done by Islamic Jihad in an errant missile strike. But that didn't stop them from canceling and for protests to happen all around the world, including at our embassy in Lebanon, home of, drumroll please, Hezbollah. Ken Paxson joins us now. Texas Attorney General, Texas, the eye of the storm. I believe the number one domestic story is our border. Attorney General, I don't think you'll argue with me there.
7: Oh, no, it's uh, it's horrible. It's getting worse. The Biden administration, in my opinion, they've, they've put together a partnership with the cartels who bring people to the border who aren't trying to hide from us. They're actually coming straight to Border Patrol. They're looking for Border Patrol. And they turn themselves in so said they can be transported somewhere in the United States illegally. But that's what's happening.
2: Do you think with this heightened awareness of Hezbollah and Hamas, where we actually we have our guys, Griff came out and said there were two Lebanese uh, uh, males that came across. One was on the terror watch list. Then we have other Pakistan. Do you think that all this heightened awareness of a possible domestic attack can help the border cause?
7: I sure hope so. I can't. It's hard for me to imagine a president that wouldn't care about that, but he's shown no inclination towards caring about it. He knows that there have been terrorists caught on our border. I think the number is at least 240, and there's been 1.5 million gotaways that we have no idea who they are. So we know that there are terrorists coming into this country. He hasn't cared in the past. I hope that he'll change his mind because it actually will affect America because at some point. We're going to have a terrorist attack. These people are going to do something bad. And the more he allows in, the more chance of doing that, the greater the, the damage will be.
2: I want you to hear what's going on in so many major cities. But listen to this in New York. Cut 19. Yes. I can't even hear it anymore. Uh this is what's going on almost every day and it's not just New York. What's wh- how do you digest that? Ken Parks. You know
7: what? Here first obviously we have the first amendment. Anybody can say what the, whatever they believe. I'm, it's very sad to me that anyone would believe that the, what Hamas has done, killing little children and cutting their heads off. They could even consider supporting that, even if you agree with the Palestinian cause. The way to do it is not this. To kill innocent uh, people in Israel uh, is hard for me to understand anybody that could support that without being evil themselves. I don't i don't understand it.
2: What is going on? Ar- I mean, you guys even have it in Texas a little bit, not as bad as have it in, in some other major cities. I want you to hear this Cornell uh, professor, Russell Rickford, cut 20. It was exhilarating. It was
1: exhilarating.
2: It was energizing.
1: Okay. If they weren't
2: exhilarated no, 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 no. by this, this challenge to the
4: monopoly of violence, by this shifting of the balance of power, then they would not be human. I was exhilarating. Yeah. Oh
2: that's a that's a long-term professor at a ivy league institution that called the hamas attacks where where individuals holocaust survivors were massacred taken hostage and babies were decapitated he calls it exhilarating
7: i, I don't know what to call that other than pure evil uh and it's it's shocking that that there are so many people in this country that that w- would say that and i actually think it's not very many people that would say that but it It's it's pure evil. I understand having differences of opinion about what the Palestinians, where they should go, where they should live. But I don't understand killing people, innocent people, and then saying that's exhilarating.
2: Uh, With me right now is Ken Paxton. Uh, Ken, no doubt about it. One of your staunchest defenders through all the uh, the tumult that you've dealt with and came out on the other side has been President Trump. When you see what he's dealing with today, he's back in court dealing with a civil case as they're trying to say he overestimated his wealth. To the detriment of no one, literally, there's there is no plaintiff except for a a, uh, a politically hungry, fame hungry attorney general. It really this is disconcerting for me because I did not think, not being a law student, I did not think you could just target people and find something to haul them into court and take their fortune. Does it surprise you?
7: I am saddened by it, but it's becoming commonplace. Not just in my state, but all of the country. And, and, and you look at the number of cases they've filed against them and how ridiculous they are. And then you look at what's going on with you know the Bidens or, or other politicians that are more favored by, by the current administration. Nothing happens to them. And then they drum up charges in, in some of the most liberal counties and the most liberal states where Donald Trump has less chance of winning because of political bias. I mean, we're losing our country. If you're going to weaponize the courts, if it's not going to be about justice anymore and about actually finding real wrongdoing instead of targeting people, it's clear to me that the president's been targeted and they want him out of the way. And it's, it's sad that that's where we're at in our country. But if
2: an attorney general in a state can do that, I don't know. You probably wouldn't. But let's say there's somebody in Oklahoma that really doesn't like this Democratic candidate. And all of a sudden, they got to go find deep something in the background, and they got to start filing civil cases against them. And why? Because well, maybe they're not the maybe they're susceptible in some way, but more importantly, they're no longer the front runner. You know, Republicans and Democrats do this all the time to each other. Is this the template we want to follow?
7: No, I think it's the, exactly the wrong template. It is. It should be decided at the ballot box. I'm not saying that legitimate crime shouldn't be investigated, but we're well past that. We're 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 into. Weaponizing the Department of Justice. We're into weaponizing local DAs. And and it was never designed. Law enforcement isn't designed to decide elections, it's designed to punish crimes. And when you turn it into a political weapon, we've lost our republic. And we have to find a way to stop that or we will lose our freedom.
2: And lastly, I know this was the number one story last week before the uh, Israel war two weeks ago. And that was President Biden said, Yeah, I'm going to build a wall. I have to. The law says I have to, but it's going to be movable and smaller. Number one, is that true? Have you seen anything happen? And what about the wall that we paid, the fence that we paid for, the steel girders uh, that's just laying in in Texas and in Arizona? What about that?
7: I don't believe any of what he said. Uh, I think he's saying that for election purposes. He's a year out. He realizes that the border is a disaster for his election, reelection. And I think he's trying to address that. By saying suddenly, he's going to build a wall, but the reality is I don't see any effort towards that. All I've seen him do is waste literally millions of dollars that were appropriated by Congress that were directed by Congress, build the wall. And he said, nope, not following that law. I've decided those, those resources are going to get wasted. We'll pay the contractors for nothing and we'll let everything rot on the border, but we're not going to do anything about it. So it's all politics for him. It's not about doing the right thing, which is protecting the citizens of my state and the citizens of this country.
2: How much does it cost you guys to do all these things for illegal immigrants, to get your own uh, Texas coalition to go out there and police the border, uh, the extra time in law enforcement, National Guard? How much does it cost Texas?
7: I don't think we even know the full cost, but it's billions of dollars out of our budget for law enforcement. I do know that. But the actual cost, the higher crime rates, the – the the cost the social cost of losing our kids to fentanyl over this is that we shouldn't lose the cost of educating uh illegals and the health care costs i i don't even know if anybody really knows what that number is but i know that's affecting us every single texan is paying that is paying for that for that cost and it's it's sad and the worst ones are the kids the families that i know where they've lost one of their kids and i i i know too many families that have have lost kids to fentanyl over those is that I attribute to this border being wide open.
2: And lastly, there are people listening to us in New York, Chicago and Philadelphia and Washington that are saying, hey, Ken Paxton, you and your governor, stop sending illegals to our city. What's your message?
7: My message is this. We get, what, six, 7,000 people a day crossing our border into Texas. And these are sanctuary cities that were created during the Trump administration that said that they wanted illegals and they were criticizing Donald Trump for protecting the border. That all sounded good when Donald Trump was protecting the border and they didn't actually have to deal with illegal immigration. And then suddenly when when Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis sends a few hundred or a few thousand people to Chicago or to Martha's Vineyard, wherever, they complain about it. And they complain about the cost and the reality of actually having to deal with the problem. The hypocrisy I think was shown for what it was, the complete hypocrisy by these Democratic mayors who wanted sanctuary cities, but only when it didn't affect them.
2: Yeah, I just want you to hear this. On 60 Minutes Sunday, they decided to focus on one immigration issue, the Martha's Vineyard flight from Florida, starting in Texas, and into Martha's Vineyard. They told 39 people, hey, rich people, this is the problem Texas deals with every single day, and these are the planes being dropped off in Jacksonville Airport. Uh, with the legals that we knew nothing about, that governors weren't informed about. Listen to what they decide to focus on. But this is a sheriff who's siding with the Martha's Vineyard immigrants.
9: The story caught the attention of Sheriff Javier Salazar in San Antonio. He's the highest ranking uniformed law enforcement officer in Bear County, Texas, about 140 miles north of the border with Mexico. What was your reaction when you heard that they were taken from your county?
2: I mean, I was shocked. Like, why, why Bear County? You're, you're the Florida governor. You know, why are you messing with people in Bear County that are here legally at that point, by the way? You know, they're not undocumented anymore. They've been documented. They're here legally. Salazar, a Democrat,
9: spent 23 years with the San Antonio Police Department before he was elected sheriff in
2: 2016. So you, you understand what was going on here. How they decide to focus on that is is ridiculous. But what is your take on this story?
7: Well, first of all, I mean, the the, the Democratic uh, sheriff is wrong about them being here legally. They're not here legally. Uh, Just because the Biden administration found a way to to, to slip them in doesn't mean they're here legally. And I don't know why he wants that big problem in in San Antonio. But it's clear to me that they have huge problems in San Antonio under his leadership. And I'm I'm sad that he said that because the that is not the problem. The problem is that is not Texas or Florida sending a few hundred or a few thousand people to these sanctuary cities. The problem is the seven thousand people that cross the Texas border or six thousand people that cross the Texas border every day that we have to deal with.
2: I hear you. Uh, It's just amazing, Ken, that they would have this issue to focus on, not the border wall, not the flood coming in, not the cities overwhelmed, not the sanctuary cities that they're now pushing to get out, not the right to shelter. Let's focus on Martha's Vineyard from two years ago. Uh, It's um, it's nuts. Ken Paxton, thanks so much. Glad your troubles are behind you. I look forward to talking to you again.
7: Hey, thanks, Brian. Have a great
2: day. All right. One eight six six four oh eight seven six six nine. Don't move.
1: Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade.
2: Here we go. Nobody better to have Mick with me in studio uh, than Martha McCallum right now, anchor of the story. We're watching explosions taking place in Gaza Strip. We're watching, by the way, it's almost totally debunked at this point that the IDF blew up that hospital and the president of the United States is still in Tel Aviv. And we're also looking at a vote. We're splitting the screen maybe another third because it looks like they're going to see if Jim Jordan is going to be speaker again. Martha, I gave you a, a smorgasbord of issues. Pick one and spin the Lazy Susan. Well, you know what?
9: I think that what we need right now is a lot of grown ups to weigh in. And as far as what's happening in Congress, it seems that maybe the most logical choice at this point, rather than putting the American people and the House of Representatives through 15 or more votes to get this done, why don't they empower um, the current? pro tempore speaker, um, Patrick McHenry, to, to just carry out the task. Man
2: with the bow tie. Right?
9: You've got a lot going on in the world. He is a smart member of Congress. If they all get together and say, we're going to empower you to continue to move legislation through the House, to do funding for defense, which is obviously extremely important right now, I don't think the American people really care that much who the speaker is. I think these individuals care a whole lot more than the rest of the country do. I think they'd like to know that there's someone in place who can keep the wheels turning because it's important to keep the wheels turning. And I think that that, that would probably be the best move for
2: them at this so, point rather so than keep, putting
9: everyone through a ridiculous right. number of votes. You
2: listen to Matt Rosendale, Matt Gates, say, like, we have to get things regular order. We know more CRs. Now, what hope well, do I you have? Well, I think there's with- a lot of support for no more CRs. Right. But it wasn't done, whatever reason. So what are the chances of those of those uh, appropriations bills getting done, being that nobody's working on them right now?
9: Precisely. So it it, I just think that when people see what happens on Capitol Hill and how twisted up they get in their own scenarios, they are so appalled by it that what they want is just for them to do their job. Right. And And I think that does include actually splitting up the appropriations bills, cutting spending. Because we know there's a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of waste in these budgets, so much waste goes on in Washington. That's how we got to trillions and thirty one trillion dollars in debt. So yeah, I think someone responsible to take the to take the wheel right. at this point um would be very welcome in this country,
2: but get rid of Kevin McCarthy, he was the problem, so he's gone. And now you don't have anything being done. Oh, the impeachment wasn't tough enough. It wasn't legitimate enough. What's the impeachment inquiry? Nothing, right? No. We're, what are we doing on appropriations bills? There's absolutely nothing going on. So it totally, does anyone think it through? Did anyone say, hey, Matt, listen, I know how you feel, but if we, if we blow you up, it's going to be hard to get somebody else in and let's just wait another nine months. Let's wait another nine months. When it comes to a speaker vote, we'll pick somebody else. Did anyone say that because we're not going to be able to replace him?
9: No. I mean, look at the, the power that Nancy Pelosi had over her conference. She was able to basically strong arm them into continuing support her to support her based on the kind of arguments that you're making right now.
2: But she promised to leave in two years, yeah, and she did.
9: Absolutely. And it's, you know, it, it is a mess. And and I just think given what's happening in the world, there's going to be very little patience for a continued process here. And I think there is support for them to to allow the pro tempore to actually have the tools that he needs to move
2: forward right i always wonder where we get these crazy latin names pro tempore right sounds it like temporary on, oh thanks
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> a talk show that's real this is the brian kilmeade show
2: Martha McCallum's here, and she's, we're looking together at this Wall Street Journal story. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had uh, had the story that intelligence revealed that Iran's Quds Force was actually behind the plotting and planning of this attack on Israel. And they talked about the Hamas and Hezbollah getting together in a place called, uh, I think I can remember it, Beirut. Mm-hmm. And they potted and planned it, even went to do it as early as April bi-weekly starting in August, and they pull it off in October. And now, if I'm the administration, in the very least, I'm saying, hey, guys, let me know where you got this from. Who are your sources? But evidently their sources were Hamas. They've got sources on the inside over in Israel. So got, they have pretty solid sources. No one said this is not true. Then they expand on it even more, how the Tehran took advantage of after the hostage thing was done to put it in everybody's face. And lull everyone to sleep, letting Hamas think they had no big plans for taking over the region or causing major civil unrest.
9: I mean, this is very in depth reporting, it goes through March, April period, April to October, September, documenting all of these meetings, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, holding an hours-long online meeting with an elite group of strategists from all over Iran about the backed militias and getting them ready for a war with Israel with a scope and reach, including a ground invasion that would mark a new era, according to two participants from Iran and Syria. I, I mean, I can only believe that the White House has just decided that they don't want to... They don't want to recognize this because it's extremely problematic. And maybe in time they will recognize this, but that they feel that hanging this on Iran at the moment is going to be too difficult.
2: So Iran's motives and timing are clear, it goes on to say. In August, a deal for five Americans, the U.S. agreed to release five imprisoned Mm -hmm. Iranian nationals and transfer six billion to Qatar. A report followed that Mr. Khomeini had granted permission for nuclear negotiations while oil exports had reached their pre-sanctioned peak. Then Khomeini likely didn't expect the U.S. approach to persist after Hamas' attack. His regime has accumulated enough wealth to survive for several more years. Uh, his green light for nuclear negotiations are nothing but deception. The only surprise for Tehran likely came last week when the U.S. allegedly froze the $6 billion. Allegedly. Because Qatar says, we didn't freeze it. So, and Iran says, we could do whatever we want.
9: It's, it's so hard to, it seems as if the easiest thing in the world would be to just say, well, we're refusing that money. When, when they made this deal, which made no sense on its face back then either, you give me five people, I'll give you five people, I'm going to throw in $6 billion of unfreezing your assets just for good measure. And when I asked about it, we asked Kirby, we asked the White House, they said, well, we wouldn't have gotten the people back without that deal. Okay. I mean, this is this is not what anybody would call. I mean, a a fifth grader wouldn't call that a good negotiation. Six billion and five people for five people is not a good negotiation. Now they, for some reason, are tripping over the the ability to say out loud, we are refreezing that money based on the fact that we know that they are the 93 percent supporter of Hamas. And even if we can't draw the direct link, which The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal seem to be able to do. This would be the strongest thing that they could have said days ago as soon as it happened. Well, obviously, there were strings attached to that agreement, and we will freeze that $6 billion because they have, they're have they doing 3, billion, 3 million barrels of oil a day that they were not doing before this deal. And obviously, that has flooded into their coffers and given them the money to pull this off.
2: So to add to that, Andy McCarthy did some follow-up on this story, and he was on with us Monday. And he said, do you know – that the Iranians that we freed were legitimate convicts, espionage, and do you know they're still here because they have green cards and we didn't don't even kick them out. Can you believe they're still here? I mean, they could be unto, they might be still an agent for Iran. Doesn't matter they're free. Yep, and they can't be reconvicted. And for they this. don't. And the White House has been
9: asked about that a couple of times in news conference. They don't want to talk about that. Well, they might still be here, but it, that's
2: not important. It's of course important. Oh but yeah, it's just incredible opportunity on the right. I think Nikki Haley's been taking advantage of that. Governor DeSantis is trying to do as much as he can. He was, says, I'm the first to say I don't want any refugees. I'm the first to say that we've got to be hard in Iran. Uh, Nikki Haley says, look what I did. She's got some pictures of her in the tunnels. And I think the former president on last week feels as though all his policies has been vindicated. In many ways, he's kind of right especially when it comes to the Middle East, when it comes to Iran. Don't love the way to pulling troops out of Syria, but he was convinced evidently to keep a small contingent there that is still there today. At least he could just give us something, and he swore he would have held on to Bagram. Imagine if we had Bagram Air Base in between China, Pakistan, and Iran.
9: Yeah, that would be helpful right now. I, I think it's interesting to watch the former president right now because he has made a few appearances in the middle of these court dates, right? He's not speaking clearly about the things that he did. He could be taking advantage of those moments to talk about his own record in the Middle East, talk about the Abraham Accords, talk about how close they were to a Saudi Arabian deal. Um, And yet all he talks about in these moments is how wrong he is in these court situations. So he's very focused on himself and on these... On these court challenges. And understandably, I mean, he faces 90 something counts. So it's it's clear that he's focused on how wronged he believe he believes he is in these court situations. But it does raise the legitimate question. How difficult is it for him to be the candidate in the middle of all of these court challenges that he faces? Because right now. He could be articulating quite clearly his own mm-hmm. successes, and he's not using this opportunity to do that. I so. will
2: say I did talk to him for 30 or 25 minutes, and he said he did bring up Soleimani, and he talked about how Netanyahu backed out of it. He also talked about Netanyahu. He's obviously mad at him. Uh, but he did talk about the Abraham Accords, what they able to do, and that he says feels as though President Biden went out of his way to undo everything. He
9: did, absolutely. And he
2: did, right? I mean
9: – Absolutely, and I think um, – you know, I mean, I would imagine that we'll hear him articulated a lot more in the future. And do you think it would be to his in...
2: advantage to go to the debates?
9: Well, I think it would give him an opportunity to talk about these things and to make it very clear that he made a lot of progress in this area. Here's what I here's what I'm seeing. I think that Iran felt. That to some extent during the Bush administration, and then to a great extent during the Trump administration, they were more isolated by the policies that were taking place, right? Now they're in the middle of the Biden administration, and they see this opportunity and they feel very isolated. They see the potential for a deal with Israel and Saudi Arabia. They see all of these, they see Israel and Saudi Arabia talking about being the two countries that are the most important countries in the Middle East, about a future, about an economy, about economic opportunities that they can take advantage of together. And with all of these moves between the United States, Israel, and the Arab states, Iran Iran gets more and more and more isolated. So what do they do? An attack that is so brutal and so heinous that it will provoke a response that will drive the United States and Israel together, and the Arab partners
1: running
2: to Iran's side. Right. It's it's pretty plain to see. Iran's foreign minister has warned in an ominous tweet uh, this morning that time is running out for Israel following an attack on the hospital in Gaza as experts grow concerned about a potential third world war. They wrote that like three or four different ways. Time's running out. What do you think they mean by that? Because they What does Iran mean by it? Iran doesn't want direct wars, if you notice. They don't want to necessarily say, this is Iran against you. They want to go Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad. They want to go Hamas. They want to... Have a uh, terror attack inside Iraq. We don't really know who did it. They came across the line, not necessarily oh, sanctioned. Absolutely, Islamic Syria, kill. Iraq,
9: all over the all over the map. They haven't had to because they've been able to use these terrorist entities to put pressure on the United States all over the place. But I do think that they see this opportunity to squeeze Israel, and their goal is to push them out of existence. And I think they're they're pushing that envelope in a way that they never have before. And I think it's a very perilous, very perilous moment. I think they have the sort of tacit approval from a distance of of Russia and China. And the three of them create a new axis of evil that I think they feel um, that the moment is ripe for.
2: We were just watching so many things. Uh, We are watching some unrest at the Lebanese uh, Mm. outside our embassy in Lebanon. We're also watching the beginning of a second vote for whether Jim Jordan's going to be speaker or not. Yesterday, he lost. He was about 20 short. Uh, Some of the people that voted for Lee Zeldin, some Kevin McCarthy, and we had some that Steve Scalise. Uh, Before we go to break, this is personal. People don't like the way Jim Jordan treated Steve Scalise at the end, so it's personal. Some people are upset that Kevin McCarthy was ousted, so it's personal. Some people are upset that Jim Jordan had his him and himself would be too direct and were too confrontational over the weekend as he tried to get... Over 200 votes. Can we possibly can we possibly put that aside for one common goal?
9: That would be nice. I think that's what the American people would like to see. I think they are disgusted by what's going on. But I've heard from a number of sources that they have never seen the enmity at the level that it's at right now. Against Jim Jordan. Yeah, I I mean, against a number of factions against Jim Jordan, Primarily, but the disgust about what happened over Kevin McCarthy is very high as well. Um, yeah. And and insult behavior towards Steve Scalise. It's it's very, very ugly what's happening right now. And I think that Democrats are just eating it up.
2: And I would if I was them, I would not look to save the Republicans. I would like to get together on what you brought up voting on letting this temporary uh, Congressman McHenry be the temporary speaker. You call him pro tempore. What do you call him? <laughs>
9: The pro tempore, the speaker pro tempore.
2: Oh, so it's if I Latin. said if I said it's Latin? Yes. Is that your native tongue? No. Oh. If it, the way it rolled off, it sounded like something you could almost speak the language.
9: No. I, I didn't take Latin. Did you?
2: Should have. Yeah. People say My that kids if, all took Latin. And did it help them with vocabulary?
9: Absolutely. They
2: could just figure out the root of every word. It's a great
9: word. education. Absolutely. Right.
2: What was I thinking? I
9: don't
2: know. All right. My kids don't speak Latin. The McCallum kids do. Back
1: in a moment. <laughs> Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
2: Martha McCallum, we have a few more minutes. We actually have nine minutes together. Who's going to be on your show?
9: So we have all At of 3 o'clock favorites. Eastern. We have our great reporters um, who are in the field in Israel. We've got Lucas Tomlinson. We've got Greg Palcott that we're going to talk to, Mike Tobin. So we're going to touch base with everybody. We've had a lot of breaking news at 3 p.m. over the past few days, so we'll continue uh, to cover all of that. We are also going to speak with Chris Christie um, about the response that President Biden had this morning and also about what the impact is on the race. I think this is really, you know, I, I think we've always felt that there was going to be an issue that is going to potentially change the race. And I, I think this may be it. Uh, so we're going to talk to him about the impact of all of this on the presidential race as well. You know,
2: it's really going to help. Do you remember? And I'm H. sure. H.R. McMaster
9: as well. Excuse me. Wow. Going to he's join fantastic.
2: Us, yeah. I've been looking for him. He's a, he's a great military mind and historian. Absolutely. So also he's got this history out in the field with, I think, the Hoover Institute. But what I want to get to, I'm sure I don't have to remind you that Senator McCain got the nomination because the surge worked. Remember, he was carrying around his own briefcase. The surge was happening. He supported it. But by the time we got to June, the economy fell apart. And Obama did a much better job communicating and understanding what was happening. Mm -hmm. And they looked at Bush as responsible for that, even though in many ways he wasn't, as Paulson tried to take over. So it was an opportunity. Things changed. Originally, when it was this young guy, he's too young. He's got to get an experienced vice president to even be considered ready. we got to go get Joe Biden. Against John McCain, he needed to show a little bit of youth. Let's get this up-and-coming governor, go Governor Palin. And all that turned on his head. So I'm sure there'll be another twist and turn.
9: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're coming up on one year, right? Early November will be exactly a year away from the presidential election. Think about the fact that Barack Obama was really – you know, it, it looked like he wasn't doing well in Iowa at all. His donors were very concerned at that point that he wasn't going to be able to pull out a win. His wife, Michelle Obama, said at that point privately, it came out later in books, that if they if they didn't win in Iowa, they should throw in the towel. That she felt that in order to for him to prove that he could win the country, he had to prove that he could win in Iowa. And he ended up pulling that out and, you know, really you know John from, from that point, second thing right yeah and from from that point i think that obama was unbeatable actually regardless of world events i think that he was just sort of that person who was destined to to be able to pull it off cuz he had that charisma he had that sort of clinton charisma that works right i mean you look at people who can turn the thing on its head and and stand out and i think that at this point everybody's wondering whether or not there are some switches and twists and turns to come in this race and i, I think there might be
2: and here's why you're right. And I think you know you're right. I don't think you need my comp- uh, my affirmation, but I'll just go with Let's pretend you do. Nikki Haley, it helps. She's not just governor of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. If you want to go domestic, she's got a story to tell. And the president, the foreign president. Because the foreign president, if he starts doing some of the things you, you recommended, talk about what you actually did. Mm-hmm. And to, don't worry about the court cases. Pretend they don't exist. And you start talking about, what I'm going to run on that. Yeah. And then you instead of asking a governor to talk about what they might be like internationally. Right. You No, ha- you I, have I think
9: it. that's absolutely right. And as you point out, we we could see another twist that takes everyone's attention off of what's going on around the world. But right now you have to look at the gravity coming from the former president and also Nikki Haley. I mean, it raises questions about, you know, whether or not they could ever run together. They have said a lot of uh, very unkind things about each other in this process, but... Not know, as
2: bad as it could have been. I mean,
9: Nikki Haley wants to be president. Yeah. yeah. And and I am not suggesting in any way that that is not exactly the role that she wants. And she may she may pull off the nomination in the end. Uh, that That's what makes this extraordinarily interesting. But she's well-positioned for this moment. There's no doubt about that. And we're
2: waiting on the, the speaker vote. It's going to be happening any moment. We're also watching some of these... Uh, some of the unrest around the world, but one thing we could say clear, just in case you're just tuning in, the hit on the hospital, as tragic as it was, maybe 500 dead. It looks abundantly clear this was not it was not Israel's doing. This was uh, the Islamic Jihad, an errant missile. And we're not asking you to take our word for it. There's actually uh, there is actually some verbiage that put out there. There's transcripts that are out. Right. You can actually hear the audio of them realizing they hit a hospital from the cemetery, and you'll hear it go back and forth. But yet the president of the United States goes over and wanted to meet with uh, King Abdullah as well as President Sisi of Egypt, as well as the Fatah leader Mahmoud Abbas. All three blew him off because of an event they blamed the Israelis for. But just to look further, the one who's in trouble looks like Mike Pence. Mike Pence looks like he's got $600,000 in debt. He might have trouble getting on the stage in November. Uh, The other one that could be in trouble is Tim Scott. Because a lot of Tim Scott's donors... Saying if you don't get some traction, I don't think I, think I can continue to finance you.
9: Well, and you all—you already the have quality dis, uh, individuals. DeSantis donors who've backed away from him as well. And people watch this process. You know, it really does become about the donors at this stage of the game because if they back off or they hold their fire and they sit on their money, uh, it makes it very, very difficult for a lot of these candidates to move forward. So, in many ways, uh, it can be a determinant factor. I think there is a push um, from larger Republican field forces to, to narrow the field. But, um, you know, there's a lot of egos involved and a lot of people who think they should be president. So we'll see what happens.
2: So I want you to hear what President Trump told me yesterday about a poll that came out that was it was uh, fortuitous for, uh, for Joe Biden and RFK. RFK, if he runs an independent, would take seven. If he does that right now, according to this poll, Trump loses by seven. Listen to this.
5: Well, he's a Democrat. I think it's probably helpful of me. He's a Democrat. Look, he's a Kennedy. Number one, you put the name Kennedy, that's a Democrat. But if you look at his environmental stance, he closed up New York. He wouldn't let uh, pipelines go through to Massachusetts and various other places go through New York State. He was very, very tough. He was brutal on the environment. He actually destroyed Andrew Cuomo. He actually destroyed him because Andrew Cuomo wouldn't do a thing without his approval. And New York State got left behind. The environmental stuff that he approved is, is right. just terrible. So, so he's,
2: no, he, he's ready for his opposition research already. But mm-hmm. I, do you think that he could take more from, from Trump than Biden? Well, there's a. If Trump's yeah. a nominate? I mean,
9: you know, there is polling that shows that he takes more from Trump than Biden. And I think when you look at, you know, Kennedy says he's going to be the first podcast president. He's spent most of his time talking to Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, and he's got a lot of. You know, he's got a lot of supporters out there. I think he probably pulls more from Trump than Biden. He
2: talked to he talked to both of us, so that he's got to be smart. Exactly. Uh, Tom Cole is nominating Jim Jordan. Good
5: luck, Tom.